light of infinite. Blessings don't come easily in this world. Everything of great value comes through hardship. Even peace itself comes from being diligent in bitul, self-transcendence, choosing how to navigate our reactions. The deeper and more meaningful a relationship is, the better the chances are of having difficult elements to work through. If you want to go deep in a relationship, there will be work to get through so that each person feels that they are being heard and loved in the way that they need. It's similar in relationships between parents and children. The amount of love a parent gives to their child is incredible, but it comes from a constant giving of one's emotional and physical faculties. In the newborn stage, to waking up every couple hours to feed, hold, or change the baby when we just want to have a solid night's sleep. When they are older, it's a series of challenges that any human goes through and every parent wants to take on. But the connection cannot be deeper and the love more profound because of those challenges on the journey. Through the hardships comes the blessings. In this parasha, Rashi says that Yaakov sought to dwell in tranquility. But as soon as he did, immediately the troubles with Yosef and his brothers began. And instead of peace, Yaakov ended up mourning Yosef, thinking he was dead for 20 years, only reuniting with him in his old age. It's said that when a tzaddik wishes to live at ease, Hashem says to them, Are not the righteous satisfied with what is stored up for them in the world to come? That they wish to live in ease in this world too? There's a song by Cage the Elephant that I remixed for Bonnaroo, an album called Ain't No Rest for the Wicked. It's a playoff of the verse from Isaiah, There is no peace for the wicked. But in Talmud Brachot, Chazal or sages say the same in regards to tzaddikim. The righteous have no rest. And Job wrote that man was born to toil. Essentially, in this world, we have work to do, and we can't hope to sit idly by as our unique gifts and talents grow stale. As we covered last week, we are all interlinked, especially on the spiritual level. And so by fulfilling one's mission, a righteous person is fulfilling and completing the missions of the righteous souls that precede them. This comes into play with Yaakov as he sought to dwell in tranquility. But this tranquility only came into being after Yaakov went through the hardship of Yosef's descent into Egypt. The Lubavitcher Rebbe explains that this brought about complete bitul. Yaakov's relationship with the material was to dominate it, but always remain above it, still elevating it to its source. But Yosef took this a step further when he was brought against his will down to Egypt as a slave. So Yaakov, ultimately finding himself in Egypt, was able to merit bringing the sparks of holiness that are found in the lowest levels of material existence. It was the very elevation to the highest level of the materiality and physicality found in the lowest level that allowed Yaakov's request of dwelling in tranquility, a taste of the world to come, in this life, to be finally answered. The Zohar teaches that after this period, Yaakov was granted another 17 years of pleasure, luxury, delight, ecstasy, as it's written, and Yaakov lived with pleasure and delight, like the righteous who will delight in the radiance of the infinite light. It's interesting that this period of delight and tranquility came after the 22 years of Yosef was away from Yaakov, which perhaps was a tikkun, a rectification that Yaakov himself needed for the 22 years that he spent away from his father Yitzchak. But going back into the initial breaking of Yaakov's tranquility, it began when Yosef told his father Yaakov about his brother's inappropriate behavior behind their backs. Yosef's karma came quickly. Everything that he had reported to his father about his brothers came back to him. He told Yaakov how the brothers treated the sons of the handmaids with contempt and called them slaves, and then Yosef was sold to be a slave. Because he shared with his father that his brothers were acting immorally, Yosef's master's wife cast her eyes upon him, and he landed in prison in Egypt for two years. We see the same when Yosef shared his dreams with his brothers, painting a picture of them worshipping him. Even though it was a dream, it stirred jealousy in them. Rav Samson Raphael Hirsch explains that the evil reports Yosef would bring to his father about them was what united the brothers to turn against him. Yosef was the one brother that had the ability to unite them for the positive. Since he was the only one who had dealings with both groups, 
Leah's sons and the sons of the handmaidens. But instead of uniting the two, Yosef in a childlike way would share with his father the bad things that each group said about each other. This is what ultimately united them, as the common ground for people that dislike each other is often when those two groups find a common enemy. Tzfonat Paneach points out that this parasha mentions that Israel loved Yosef more than his other sons. The word Israel generally implies the entire nation, and so the choice of the word to be used here, where many other parashiot still write Yaakov, is a hint towards the beginning of exile of the Israelite nation. In accordance with what Hashem told Avram in the Brit Ben Abitarim, the covenant of the parts, which states that Avram's descendants would be enslaved and then eventually redeemed, and that they would inherit the land of Canaan, known as Israel. The Jewish nation started to take form through Yaakov's 12 sons, forming the 12 tribes, and the sale of Yosef into slavery marks the beginning of the nation's exile. And what began this long, bitter exile? Words. Words of a brother against his brothers. Words create worlds. Hashem spoke existence into being. Words have the power to create, but can also destroy the very same thing. So it's not surprising that it's forbidden to speak Lashon Hara, evil tongue, which means speaking negatively about someone else, even if it's true. As Tupac famously saying, only God could judge me, because there are three sides to any story, each person's perspective and the truth, and only Hashem knows the truth. So when we spread stories about others, whether true or not, we are destroying the potential of connecting elements and people, and in some ways, destroying the elements or connections that already exist between people. In such cases, negative begets negative, and judgments tend to skew unfavorably, playing on people's predilection for drama. In those moments, we tend to forget each one of us are our own complex universes, and not what one would perceive as 100% good or 100% bad, but just individuals trying our best. By avoiding Lashon Hara and focusing only on the positive, we can judge everything favorably. And as Rabbi Nachman of Breslov teaches, that every act can bring a person to a place of merit, to a place of revealed good and tshuva, return. Rabbi Moshe Weinberger shares a story of Rab Simcha Bonham. There was once a tzaddik named Rab Shaila, a brilliant man of Torah living in the town of Peshulberg. He was opposed to the Hasidim of Rab Simcha Bonham of Peshiska. He still had many friends who were followers of this man, though. For example, he was on very good terms with Rab Yitzchak of Vurka, who was a follower of the Hasidim of Bonham. One day, this man Rab Yitzchak was traveling through Pshetberg, and he stopped to visit his friend Rab Shaila. Rab Shaila was disturbed by this gap between them and said, Rab Yitzchak, I know that you are a follower of Rab Simcha Bonham. How can you even come to see me? Doesn't it bother you? You know that I'm against your Rebbe. If you are a real chassid, how can you even talk to me? Rav Yitzchak answered, If I knew you were opposed to my Rebbe, you're right. I wouldn't be able to look at your face. Our friendship would be impossible. But I don't believe that you are really opposed to my master. You have never met him. You're only judging based on Lashon Hara that has been spoken about him. I know him well. He is holy and pure. Whoever says anything against him is telling lies. If you actually meet him yourself, you would agree. And so when you were saying anything negative against Rabbanam, you weren't saying it against him. Then, Rav Yitzchak told Rav Shaila a story. Last year, he said, I was traveling through a new town where I had never been before. I was in the market when out of nowhere a woman attacked me. She was screaming and hitting me with a lot of anger. People around us pulled her off of me and it turns out that she had been abandoned by her husband years before. And when she saw me, she thought I was him. When she realized her mistake, she was so embarrassed and apologized profusely. It was especially terrible for her because people around were chastising her for attacking a rabbi. She asked if I could ever forgive her and I explained, don't be upset, really. The person you were attacking was your husband because you thought I was him. If you had only known I was Yitzchak from Vorka, you never would have attacked me. The lesson we learn from these teachings is that when Rav Shaila was saying negative things about Rav Simcha Bonham, he was not actually talking about Rav Simcha Bonham. As Rabbi Yitzchak explained, 
This is because the person Rav Shaila was imagining Rav Simcha Banam to be is not really who he is. You're imagining him to be a terrible person, he explained, as a result of those negative rumors you've heard, but that is not him at all. This is not the person I know him to be. If my Rebbe had really done those things that the people are saying about him, then you'd be right to oppose him. I would oppose him too. Therefore, I had no problem with you or our friendship because the things you are saying are true, but you've got the wrong man. The man you are describing is not my Rebbe. The rabbi most associated with not speaking Lashon Hara is Rabbi Yisrael Meir HaKohen of Radin, known simply as the Chafetz Chaim, so named by his farim by the same name, inspired by the verses in Tehillim. Whoever of you desire life, Chafetz Chaim, guard your tongue from evil. Lashon Hara as a concept is fairly well known, and people seem to be reminding others of it from time to time. But it also seems as though so many people don't actually know the laws pertaining to the importance of this prohibition. If you were studying for a test of how to be a good Semitic Samaritan, the cliff notes might look a bit like this. Lashon Hara means bad talk. This goes so far as to it being forbidden to speak negatively about someone else, even if it's true. This is also the concept of not partaking rechilut, gossip, where it is forbidden to repeat anything about another, even if it's not a negative thing. The prohibition is also on the listener as it's forbidden to listen to Lashon Hara. And accordingly, one should either make sure that the one who is speaking stops, or, if that's not possible, one must remove themselves from the space of Lashon Hara. If the person has already heard the Lashon Hara, prohibition goes as far as making sure to not believe what one has heard. And in those cases, we have to be extra careful to judge the person, and indeed every person favorably. Talmud Nida says, even with all that in mind, it's important to take necessary precautions to protect oneself in regards to what was spoken. We also can't retell a negative event using names, and even without using names, since the listener might figure out who is being spoken of. The one exception to Lashon Hara is when it comes to certain circumstances, such as to protect someone from harm. For example, in business dealings and in Shiduchim marriage arrangements, it's permissible or even obligatory to share negative information. But there are many intricate details to these exceptions, and so it's important to learn them prior to using them as leniency in any specific situation. The Baal Shem Tov explains that Lashon Hara kills three people, the inventor of the slander, the one who relates it, and the listener. He adds that this kind of spiritual murder in many ways can be considered more severe than physical murder. There are also many stories of the Baal Shem Tov illustrating the damaging effects of Lashon Hara. One of these is a man that loved to tell stories, some about folks he knew, others about folks that he had never heard of. He would always embellish the stories to make them more entertaining. Once he found out something strange about another businessman in his community and couldn't wait to share the story with his friends. They of course shared it with their friends until the stranger's news made its way around the town. Finally, the main character of the story, the businessman himself, heard the news. This businessman ran to the rabbi in distress. Rune, no one in the community would deal with him now. Just like that, his good name was gone. The rabbi explained to the businessman and said, I have an idea, and he decided to send for the man who loved stories. Figuring it was not he who started spreading the Lashon but perhaps he would know who it was. The man didn't think much of it because it was true. But after hearing from the rabbi how devastated the businessman was, the man who loved to tell stories felt true sorrow and regret. The rabbi explained that whether it is true or not true, it's all slander, which is akin to murder. As we see in this case, one kills the person's reputation and their ability to live. The man started to feel even worse and asked, what can I do to make it undone? I will do anything you say. The rabbi looked at the man and told him, go to your home, bind a feather pillow and bring it back to me. The man thought this was a strange request, but it seemed easy enough. He fetched a pillow, came back to the rabbi. The rabbi opened the window and handed him a knife and said, cut it open. The man replied, but rabbi, here in your study, it will make a mess. The rabbi nodded, it's fine, and said, do as I say. 
So the man cut the pillow and saw a cloud of feathers come out, landing on the chairs, on the bookcases, on the clocks, on the cat which jumped after them. They started to float over the table and into the teacups, on the rabbi and a man with a knife, and a lot of them flew out the window. The rabbi waited 10 minutes and then looked at the man and said, Now bring back all the feathers and stuff them back into the pillow. All of them, mind you, not one may be missing. The man stared at the rabbi in disbelief and said, That's impossible, rabbi. The ones here in the room I might get, most of them, but the ones that flew out the window are gone. Rabbi, I can't do that. You know that. The rabbi looked at him and said, yes, that's how it is. Once a rumor, a gossip story, a secret leaves your mouth, you don't know where it's going to end up. It flies on the wings of the wind, and you can never get it back. The rabbi waited a couple more minutes as the man felt horrible and then said to him, now it is time to deeply apologize to the person about whom you spread the rumor. It will be difficult and painful, but it's the least you could do. You'll have to do the same with the people to whom you told the story, making them accomplices in this Lashon Hara. The lesson for us in this parasha is clear. Lashon Hara has very heavy consequences. But when reading the Torah in regards to Yosef and the brothers, we have to keep in mind that in their case, they were acting in their time in accordance with what was destined for us to have a descent to Egypt, which was needed for the eventual ascent to Israel. And so Abarbanel stresses that the Torah does not want to disparage Yosef, but rather praise him for being diligent and wise and stresses the importance of speaking up to their father as an attempt to keep them from sinning. He explains that the brothers are also not to blame as they were acting out of the assumption that Yaakov wanted to reject them like Avraham had done with his firstborn son, Ishmael, and Yitzchak had done with his firstborn son, Esau. The Arizal explains that the brothers knew that previously there was always one son worthy of spreading the consciousness of Hashem in the world and another son who was too egocentric to do so. They knew that the unworthy egocentric son had to be sent away so that mission and potential of revelation in this world would not be contaminated. They thought Yosef the unfit one of their generation, knowing that the light of Avraham was purified by the rejection of Ishmael. And when this light was passed on to Yitzchak, it still contained some secondary impurities which had to be fully purified by the rejection of Esau. Yosef's brothers mistakenly thought that the rejection of Yosef was needed in their generation for the same purpose. The Arizal explains that the brothers thought Yosef was blemishing the sphere of Yesod, foundation, which corresponds to the tzaddik, by slandering them to Yaakov, their father, this being the antithesis of peace. They feared blessings wouldn't flow to the family since peace is the ultimate vessel for receiving blessings. This is why Yesod is associated with peace, because of the vessel with which the divine blessings flow into Malchut, sovereignty. The incredible quality of Malchut, the tenth sphere, is that it contains two completely opposing qualities, exaltedness and its opposite, humility. But these combined bring the redemption. Rav Moshe Wisniewski in Apples of Orchard writes, Yosef felt that he was the guardian of Yesod, that he was a long-term peacemaker, while his brothers felt that he was an obstacle to peace. They, of course, were wrong. Peace is meaningful only if it's predicated on submission to God's will. Otherwise, if there is any element of self-orientation or egocentricity in the so-called peace, it cannot be true peace and will fall apart sooner or later. This egocentricity will eventually surface, and as soon as it does, petty self-interest will outweigh the motivation for peacefulness. Thus, although the brothers were correct in their vision of peace as being crucial to the perpetuation of the divine idea, they were wrong in giving precedence over the more fundamental issue of divine service. Peace is a means, a vessel, not an end. Only when recognized as such can it be meaningful and therefore endure. In a sense, all these events were actually directed by Hashem, even though the brothers and Yosef seem to be acting of their own free will. At the end of this series of events, Yosef looks to his brothers and says, Elohim thought it for the good. And even if the decree of exile was ordained from Brit Ben Abitarim, it was the Sinat Chinam, the baseless hatred, that was a major factor in the manifesting of the exile in Egypt. 
So we learn from this that jealousy and hatred have grave consequences, and humility is what brings redemption. Rabbi Nachman teaches that the place named Kanaan is similar to the word Hakana, submission, indicating that through humility, a person could dwell in the Holy Land, reaching their own promised land. In the words of Lynn manuel Miranda, the creator and star of Broadway's musical Hamilton, in a speech he gave in a 2016 Tony Awards, we chase the melodies that seem to find us until they are finished songs and start to play, when senseless acts of tragedy remind us that nothing here is promised, not one day. This show is proof that history remembers we lived through times when hate and fear seemed stronger. We rise and fall and light from dying embers, remembrances that hope and love last longer. And love is love as love is love as love cannot be killed or swept aside. And so I pray we lean into hope and humility as we judge each other favorably and guard our tongues to not speak ill of each other. And instead of even an ounce of sinat chinam, baseless hatred, our default becomes ahavat chinam, baseless love, which surely will usher in the final redemption. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.